This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace and maximize our impact on the world around us while we're at it. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. Our guest today, Ellen Ullman, is a gifted technology translator, an accomplished coder, and author. She's an insightful commentator on the nature and impact of technology and the culture that advances it. Her recent book is Life in Code, A Personal History of Technology, which explores the powers and implication of the digital revolution with a critical eye and deep humanity. We're going to be talking with Ellen today about her own unlikely career and about technology itself, how we learn to work with it, what we should learn from it, and how it reflects and impacts the world that we live in. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We'd love to have you join in the conversation. So give us a ring, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And if you're like Julian Cinnaminson, you can also email Patty at Business Radio at SiriusXM.com. And Julie, as always, we'd love to hear from you too. Um, and in particular, I'm wondering, what do you think the role of humanity should be in navigating the digital age and why? Give us a call and let us know what you're thinking. Once again, that's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Um, I'm super excited about welcoming Ellen Ullman today, the author of Life and Code, A Personal History of Technology. But before we bring Ellen on and discuss the book, I want to take a few minutes just to share a little bit about Ellen, which probably won't do her justice. She wrote her first computer program in 1978 and went on to have a 20-year career as a programmer and software engineer. Um, She's also a writer who, you know, did her graduate thesis on Macbeth. Her essays and books have become landmark works describing the social, emotional, and personal effects of technology. She's authored two novels, By Blood, a New York Times notable book, and The Bug, a runner-up for the PEN Hemingway Award. Her memoir, Close to the Machine, about her life as a software engineer during the Internet's first rides, has absolutely become a cult classic. So with that, I'd like to say, Ellen, welcome to Women at Work. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, of course. So I want to start at the beginning. How, as a literature major in the early 70s, um, did you become a coder? It goes through the early days of personal video. I got involved with a group called the Ithaca Video Project. And at the time, there was something called the Sony Portapack, which was the first machine that people could use by themselves or in a small group to make videos, to show them around for political purposes, for art. And if this sounds something like the personal computer it was, (laughs) suddenly these things that were controlled by behemoth corporations, you could get this technology in your own hands. And I found that I really loved working with these machines. I loved carrying around the cables on my shoulder. It made me feel really tough. (laughs) I like running cables, uh, doing the editing, uh, making the video, showing them. And it really excited me about the possibility of what machines might do. It's, yes, go on. It's interesting to me that that was your, your point of entry, because like you said, you know, we're now on another wave of that revolution of how we can individually be media makers. 
and that from that point, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. we can see that you both became, you became both a generator of content, but you also got involved in technology at a much, much deeper level. Not just how you leverage, how you leverage the machine in a deeper way through coding. Well, I, I bought uh, a TRS-80, an early microcomputer, affectionately known as a trash 80. <laughs> When I walked down Market Street one day in San Francisco and I saw it in the window, I went, oh, what can you do with that little thing? You know, can you make art? Is it anything like a Sony Portapack? So on a whim, I walked in and bought the thing. And my idea of doing it was not to be a programmer, but I just thought, well, I'm going to explore this thing. And, oh, well, it turned out you needed to learn to program. That led to a lot of hair pulling. (laughs) But when I got that first little real program working, it gave me an extreme pleasure that I did not expect I'd have. I sat back, I'm marveling. It works. And I said, <laughs> okay, i I got to figure out how to keep getting this pleasure. And so whether it was learning how to really use the machine or learning how to start to um, – code and speak to the computer and get it to do what you want it to do, it sounds like you were starting on what seems to become a lifelong process, habit, passion for taking on something that seems impossible and making your way through it. How did you learn to cope with the setbacks along the way? To be a programmer requires an extremely high tolerance for failure. The writing of code is the creation of bugs. And so you write some code, and then comes the very long process of removing the bugs one by one by one, knowing you will never, ever find the very last one. You will move on in life, and the subsequent uh, programmers who work on it will curse you. Uh, Oh, God, look what a bad job she did. This is just the humiliation that will trail after you. And so once you accept that, there also has to be a pleasure of the hunt involved in that. You know, mm, the lady vanishes, I'm going to find her. And if a person doesn't have both a high tolerance for failure and a certain intrigue about finding a solution, being a programmer is never going to work out. I love the way in the book you described that hunt as kind of like searching for the beautiful woman. Yeah. Um, Something elusive, desirable, but it seems a little out of reach, but it motivates you. Well, yeah. Um, at the time, I was uh, my life was primarily spent with women uh, in my relationships, and I was ha- having a New Year's Eve party. I went to one where everyone dressed up in slinky dresses, and so this. Also, I worked with this uh, one woman who was a buyer, and she came in clouds of Shalimar. Was very elegant in her dress, and so the bug came to be associated with. Uh, this woman um, in a particular bug that I was working on. And after New Year's Eve came and went, I just kept thinking of her as something I also liked noir movies. You know, she mm-hmm. would appear smoking a cigarette in a slinky gown and saying, so you found me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it also suggested for me, and you wrote about as much, that there's an elegance to writing code, a grace and an art to it, like speaking any language. When did you start to see that in writing code? Hmm, interesting, Uh, because the first things I worked on were pretty mundane. But I began to work with programmers who were far senior to me, and uh, among them, many men who were uh, kind and generous and who taught me because I was self-taught and without the assistance of the mainly male 
uh, employees around me, I never would have gotten anywhere. When I began to see the code written by people with much more experience, I saw the difference between the stuff that was really junky um, and the ones that were somehow compact without being obscure. Mm -hmm. Somehow there is a way in which that encompasses a certain beauty and a a, a trail of thinking that you wouldn't have gone down to solve the problem. And you look at it and go, gee, that's beautiful. Yes. And that it's like good design. And I come from a graphic design background of, you know, you, you fight with something until you've worked out all of its awkwardness. And there's a moment when it comes together and it communicates. It does its job with a grace and a simplicity that makes it seem like wasn't it always supposed to be this, but it seemed so elusive getting there. And there was something about the way you wrote about code that reminded me of that and artistry to it. Um, So I hope you don't mind my connecting those dots. Oh, no, please. (laughs) Um, One of the things that you also made me realize in that section of the book that I had never understood quite that it was a big light bulb that you turned on for me was about why coding culture is so isolated and you know I've always thought about the boys in the in the hoodies to be kind of binary about it and um, that it seemed kind of antisocial and there's a whole culture around it but then when you started to describe the process of trying to think in another language and create that kind of clean line of code without mistakes. It reminded me of being a graphic designer in the studio alone late at night and needing desperately not to have my concentration interrupted. Um, What was it like for you to go into that culture and understand it and then live within it? Boy, that is a very big question. (laughs) (laughs) We can break it down. Where to start and then where to go from there. Yeah, so how did you enter the culture and, and start to understand it? Well, initially, I worked with a group of people who came from backgrounds like mine. They were just exploring these machines. And, of course, it was work, but in general, we found it to be fun. A former Sufi dancer, a woman ABD in art history, um, let's see, a Frenchman who smoked Galois, uh, despite all prohibitions. <laughs> uh, and we were we were explorers, and... I wasn't exactly part of it, but if you think back to Stuart Brand and uh, actually the world that uh, John Markoff's book described, uh, what the doormat said, mm-hmm. uh, it, it was part of the whole uh, revolution in in the 60s that went into the 70s. Uh, and, and so the early days were um, really I was working with other people who, who very much were like me. Somewhere in the early, mid-80s, a whole new crowd of people came in, um, mainly men, who came out of the, who had degrees in computer science. And it was a self-selected group that, mm-hmm. had, that had come through a, an area that, you know, I, I mean, I thought about it, computer science, you know. Um, I, well, no, <laughs> you know, I know, I, I, I can play with computers, but I didn't. I didn't ever think of majoring in it. Uh, one of the ways, by the way, I, I got over coding. Um, initially, the basic language is called spaghetti code because you can just go all over and not find your way back. And if anyone knows the play Macbeth, it, it's full of things that seem to be the future but really have already happened, and it's a real confusion of past and future. It's sort of the sequence of events. 
with only one present event when uh, Macbeth comes from killing the king. Huh, now. But <laughs> so I thought, well, you know, if I could untangle that, I probably could deal with this. Uh, and then, of course, I had to deal with this culture. I worked with uh, a man who refused to talk to me, and we were doing um, an early uh, user interface to a database on Unix, and Unix at that time did not have a standard user interface. And uh, he refused to talk to me. It was all email and see the whiteboard between us. And you can imagine that is the most extreme example of what, what I faced. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I imagine very different than what it's like to be in a liberal arts environment discussing literature in well, active discourse <laughs> in real time. Well, you know, uh, people who, who write and who write poetry and study poetry can also be kind of, um, you know, monks in their own way. Yeah. <laughs> Graphic designers, too, yes. Right. So, you know, I can't make that binary thing. But it still was putting you in an environment now with that was kind of the by, an early byproduct of a pipeline problem that would put mostly men into computer science programs, so partially self-selecting, part socialized, um, and that they're now graduating as the first wave of people with this formal education who are being gobbled up left, right, and center by these employers. You have it exactly right. And so you're walking into this environment. How did you, as a coder, how was it, did you find it soothing, useful to be, to have that kind of isolation and quiet, or was there a, a cost for it? Uh, it was a, a situation where, where there are not enough women around, uh, we stand out, mm-hmm. and I think uh, many of your listeners who are women in the professions uh, know this as well. Uh, you cannot be just good. You have to be best. Yes. And the first serious mistake you made, and God, one day I brought down the whole front end to the system, and uh, with a little tiny thing, I said, oh, I can just change this line of code, and I went to lunch. <laughs> I left <laughs> all my colleagues unable to work for an hour and a half. And so... You know, I found it funny, but it was one of these things, you stupid girl. And this is what one fights against. Uh, you know, you, of course you'll make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Everyone does. But if you're a woman in, a, in an area where, where women are underrepresented, uh, it's a terrible burden. You try to love the work, and that is always when young women ask me, well, what shall I do? How do I face this prejudice? I say, you're going to face it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to publicize it. But nevertheless, you walk into that room to a meeting with a bunch of mainly men who are socialized into their private culture, and you're going to get it either covertly or overtly. Mm -hmm. And the way to deal with it, the way I did, whether it's good for other people, I can't actually say, was to just tack into my love for the work. I love doing this. I know I'm pretty good at it. I chose this out of all the other paths I might have taken in life. And I hold on to that. And it gives you a stubborn refusal <laughs> right. to, be, to be, you know, thrown out of the room. 
It's, and it and that kind of motivator is powerful and positive. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarin. I'm talking with Ellen Allman, who's the author of the book, Life in Code, A Personal History of Technology. Um, any ladies writing code out there? Give us a call. We'd love to know what it's like in your world right now. You can reach us at 1-844-942-7866. And gentlemen, we'd love to hear from you, too. How is your environment welcoming the diversity in the room? What's the work environment like? Give us a call. We'd love to talk about it. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So on the first time that I heard... Um, advice given about how you cope with this reality. It was Sandra Day O'Connor who was talking about how she always had to be better prepared than everyone else. And I was talking with last week with Laura Liswood, who's Secretary General of the Council of Women World Leaders. And she was explaining how men walk when if men are the dominant group, they walk into a room and there's the presumption of competency. And the members of the non-dominant group, particularly women in this case, there's the assumption of non-competency. And so it's this gap that just by virtue of who you are, you have to close. And it can be so demoralizing. But I love the way that you're focusing on bring your passion, that it's not just working hard so that you can defy them. It's because you love it. And that's going to help motivate you. How far did – was there any point in your career where you started to lose the passion? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, um, you know, I, I had dealt with one too many men who uh, said, you know, well, you know, this doesn't work. Do you mind if I take it over and see if I can do better? And I said, yeah, go ahead. And, you know, he'd come back to me two weeks later and say, well, I see you've put a lot of thought into it. It's like, yes. Uh, he couldn't come up with anything better. And, you know, these guys looking over my shoulder and, you know, can I look at your code? Sure, look at my code. And, well, this seems to be a pretty long function. Why don't you break it up? And it just, these are the kind of comments that, one, we didn't give each other. They were code reviews that I felt brutalized. And um, differently you know, there's some than amount they... of brutality in any code review because it's necessary to uh, get the best out of people. Uh, but at some point I felt, you know, I, I've had it. I've had it with this. And, you know, I was growing up. And they stayed perpetually boys. So uh, in a certain sense, I thought, I need a wider culture. I need to investigate other ways of thinking. And so where would you go from there? Well, I went into consulting, which is always the escape. <laughs> the nice thing is, is that even if it's not great, you know, there'll be another one. Maybe that'll be great. <laughs> it's true. It does change. keeps it fresh. That's right. You exchange one group for another. Some of the projects were really rewarding. I worked for several startups that never came to fruition. I think I may be the angel of death in some startups. Uh, uh, and I mean, some companies I worked for, uh, some consultants, they were investors who were finding startups that were failing. And we were a group sent in to find out what they were doing so they could take over the place or kill it off. And that was a, a sad kind of work for me, uh, you know, trying to get information out of programmers, all of us knowing it was to kill their their company. Uh, when the ping pong table disappeared, we knew the, <laughs> the end was coming. <laughs> so, um, and then I worked with projects that were really rewarding, um, that were, I worked on uh, a, you know, what, 
the AIDS, early days of the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco, trying to have the different service providers have a continuity of care and be able to communicate with each other and be put in a system. However, the politics of that, oh, my God, you know, identity politics are very powerful and um, put schisms, deep schisms in, in political efforts. So, I'd imagine, I'd also suspect that that's a time where your 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 well-roundedness, your education in the humanities, and your awareness and understanding of the world around you had to have been helpful. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I had to communicate with people who were in commissions in the government and who had been working with people who went around in vans uh, trying to help out people who were passed out on the street. Uh, so you can see the range of people involved in this effort. Uh, and talking to AIDS patients themselves to find out what they needed from this. You know, all these things have put in an address. <laughs> well, it is true that homeless people do have a place they hang out. And so they could, they could tell us, tell the system, like, well, this is for generally where you find me. And then, you know, they could change that. Uh, also, a degree of anonymity was very important. So it, there were so many demands and so many people I had to speak to. Um, and, I, you know, I think communication skills are valuable for any big project and software projects especially. Now, the big companies are beginning to see this. Mm-hmm. They are not just looking for guys who sleep under their desks all night with their dogs. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay? Because, one, that's bad engineering, and, two, because it doesn't bring new thinking uh, into the process and doesn't help programmers and, and communicate with each other. So it was it was helpful to me, except where I was um, disrespected for it. You're not a real programmer. You're an English major. You know, so I, every all the women out there in professions uh, face their difficulties, and I think technology has its specific ones, and women in science also, uh, women who go into physics or uh, biology uh, face fierce resistance. Um, In technology, what happens, and I think elsewhere, wherever there's this push explicitly to welcome women in, there is this fierce backlash. It's really almost atavistic. Mm -hmm. And uh, it it knocks me back these days how openly it will be expressed. This has something to do with the Trump era, no doubt. People feel free to express the most ugly uh, thoughts. Uh, So this is a segregated society um, that looks on the top like it's very progressive. Um, All the charm charm that all these companies are going around to to spread uh, in the government, uh, in the capital right now, Meanwhile, under, underneath, uh, the, the problems remain. Without a doubt. In the book, you tell a story when you were working for a guy who was really a creep, giving you an opportunity to do good work, and it seemed like he was gathering a team of smart girls, was, you know, how he thought of it. And that while you were doing the work, he was clearly sexually harassing you. No, um, that's where I'm going to interrupt you. Okay. Sexual harassment is... Uh, is a way to make you feel small and really offend you and make it make you on the edge of not being able to do your work and go to work as you don't want to go to work. Now, this guy was creepy, but 
I handled him. He wasn't really, uh, I still like going to work. You know, he, I could laugh him off, and he could laugh with me. So the man I described, it was discouraging, but one of the reasons I wanted to put that story in there, as opposed to the one with the creepy guy with pendulous uh, earlobes who was so disgusting, <laughs> I thought he'd snap my bra at that moment, um, is that he really did hire women in, in responsible technical positions. That was number one. And two, you know, I, I think as I, as I related it, he would constantly say, gee, you have pretty hair, gee, you have pretty hair. And I would just, you know, not lean in, lean to one side and say, okay, I'm just going to let that, I can't say the word, fly over my shoulder. Right. The, you, the, and and we go on. There's and, something that's really interesting in the way that you're explaining, and I think complex, and if you don't mind, I'd like to explore it. Because when I was reading it and I was thinking about... Um, you were describing like his hands would be on your back, or no? He... That's a different guy. Oh, okay. You're, you're, you're uh, um, I'm, there, there are I'm connecting the two different stories. Yeah, there's the one uh, I went to fix his system, and uh, I was sitting there, and he kept running his hand up and down my back, his sweaty hand, and and every time I changed seats, he would come with me and look over my shoulder, and I mean, this was horrible. And I just sat there plotting how to blow up the system. I didn't do it finally. I have more pride in my work. But I look back and I think, gee, you were a coward. You should have blown it up. So this was the one where, okay, so this, these are a couple of useful distinctions. That one is right. where, you know, somebody calls you darling or dear and it's a little belittling. But somewhere in it is a kind of affection that, you know, it shouldn't be expressed that way. But it's not making a hostile workplace and it's not getting it. And, and you actually have an opportunity to do good work, which is very different when um, somebody's really making it a deeply uncomfortable work environment. I mean, more than uncomfortable, really undermining. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, and I, uh, there's an early essay in Resisting the Virtual Life uh, by Laura Miller. And it was reporting how, this is the early days, bulletin boards and the, the first coming of the Internet, where women were being harassed and driven off the web. And, you know, and Laura wrote, no, there were a whole bunch of us who gave as good as we got. Okay? And I, in some way, I've taken that to heart. Uh, now, there are, as I said, there are powerful people over you. You cannot do this, too. This is like, hang on to your passion and grit your teeth, and refuse to be sent away. Sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes these uh, people over you, mostly mm-hmm. men, uh, are going to fire you or demote you or put you in a corner where you uh, cannot do good work. But in the middle, there is this, I'm not saying tough it out, but keep to a core of, of inner power. I really believe that. And then there were the guys who you just go, okay, cut it out. What are you, nine years old? <laughs> 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 Haven't you ever seen a girl's underpants, you know? <laughs> I mean, it really kind of goes to that level, and I... I just treat them like, you know, they, they're sub-adult males, which many are. <laughs> right. So there's the range of the perpetually juvenile and inappropriate um, to the people that are really criminal and, and a lot of complexity in the middle of that. So um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, I'd like to explore that a little bit more. This is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Um, I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. If you want to give us a call, that's one eight four four wharton and we'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. 
Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest today is Ellen Ullman, author of the book Life and Code, A Personal History of Technology. Um, Before the break, we were talking with Ellen about a range of things, how this um, humanities major um, with an expertise in Macbeth learned to code and entered into the technology world and the insights that she has as a result of all that she brought to it. So, Ellen, welcome back to Women at Work. I'm happy to be back. So right before we were ending, we were on some pretty potent stuff. Um, And you had talked, first of all, about the importance of being passionate about your work and um, noting a quote I loved from the book you wrote, Power Lies in the Refusal to be Intimidated Mm -hmm. in Technical Fearlessness. Um, And while you were talking about coding and learning from a sexist MOOC, look at the prejudiced and refuse to be diminished, Um, You were also suggesting right before the break about a way to channel that same power in dealing with um, the the various forms that sexual harassment can take in the workplace. And you had particularly noted that in when you look back on a particular experience you had, um, that you thought of your reaction as cowardly. Would you talk about how you would approach that today, particularly in the context of the current discussion of sexual harassment? victim silence and the coming out by victims through hashtag me too? Well, there were no hashtags in those times. <laughs> Clearly. And I'm telling you something. Well, I'll get back to you about, you know, hashtag uh, politics and my questions about how effective that is as opposed to people actually organizing on the ground. It's a good but, question. I do want to get back to that. But Yeah, that's a big topic. Um, it, it you know, again, I really wish I'd blown up this system. You know, that would have been the punky me. Start, <laughs> really, I started out, you know, just doing this stuff for fun with a, and an awareness that we were distantly remade, uh, related to Namjoon Pike, the first artist to see the, the, the television screen at the canvas and, you know, breakthroughs. And, you know, I, I wish I had been able to hold on to that part of me. Uh, but... You know, I couldn't. And I think I was both a coward and I did what I had to do. You know, I, what would he have come back and said? You know, this girl didn't know what she was doing. Send me a man, right? Right. And, and, and the list of risks is many. You could get fired because there were no protections in place. You could get further assaulted. You could get humiliated, um, you know, losing work. The, it's not without risk to stand up and fight something like that. There was a, a way in which I could. I mean, the the man I reported to, he who called me having pretty hair, uh, I went back and told him. I said, the guy's a jerk. You know, if you can, I'll be happy to remo- uh, work on his system remotely. Now I already know what's going on, but please don't send me down there again. And how did he respond? Uh, you know, he said, fine. You know, I, it was just, it wasn't a big deal. And I didn't go back. I had a good feeling that that would be all right. First of all, it costs money to send somebody you know, across the country mm-hmm. and put them up. Uh, secondly, we had good remote connections, and I'm good with, you know, I could deal with him over the phone. Um, he couldn't touch me physically. Right, and you could still get the work done and be paid. Right, right. So in my way, I, you know, quiet, you know, in a quiet way, I, 
it's funny how I felt this could be solved instinctively, and I, I'm not sure why. I think it was because he of the pretty hair was generally uh, interested in technology and, and having systems work well, and I think that spoke to that. I said, I really couldn't concentrate with the guy standing over me. And he said, sure, that makes sense to me, and on we went. You know, the, I, I hope that makes sense to you. It does. I'm curious if you were doing it over again. And when you talk about organizing, what would that have looked like? And what would that have looked like then, and how would it look different now? It was a small company, and I was uh, really friendly with one of the women. Uh, the other, uh, who was actually uh, in charge of uh, a different branch of the systems, was kind of cold. You know, she had been a math major, <laughs> and she was uh, hard to get to emotionally. And I think, I look back and I think, that's how she coped. She closed a side of her and closed an awareness and was a very, very good manager of technical systems and a good designer. But I never could... Uh, find her as an ally. So, I, you know, I think finding allies uh, mm-hmm. among women and men, you know, to feel that, hey, I'm part of this uh, group that will support one another in, in, in basic ways, uh, or you're staying all weekend to do something, and someone will say, hey, you want me to help you or at least just hang out with you because there's no air conditioning or air? <laughs> <laughs> right. And you say, well, yeah, that'd be great, you know. Um, you know, you know there's someone in the next room. You're not sitting there all alone. The whole place is dark and you can't breathe. So, uh, you know, that I, I think when I say, you know, hold on to your passion, that needs to be obviously coupled with finding colleagues that you can make alliances with. And and speaking out in a way that you know you you have power behind you. You have a group and you're not alone because, you know, Look what happened to Ellen Powell. She never, she never made it, okay? She brought up the issue, but they came down really hard on her, and there were no other women standing with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think too often the women just get fired. Right. And then they speak out. So the problem is how do you speak out in a chorus inside? I think that is beginning to happen. That's what I'm finding so interesting about, and I think a chorus is an excellent um, simile, that the it, it is like a chorus, all these voices that are coming out now and saying, I've experienced this, I've experienced this. It's now over 50 or 60 people that have come out just with Harvey Weinstein, you know, acknowledging that they've experienced this in one degree or another. Um, and may I, th- may I inter- interrupt sure. for a moment? I'm kind of really in a bad mood and annoyed over everyone coming out against Harvey Weinstein. You know, we were talking about women in technology. Uh, there were uh, articles about it. There were op-eds about it. And suddenly we're talking about a bunch of actors and actresses and the whole Hollywood thing. And I have to say, I'm annoyed at that switch, that... Again, it has turned into the the big entertainment industry. Now, I'm glad it's being taken down, but I'm sorry that the story of other women is being pushed to the back. I mean, I suppose that's the news business, you know, all the latest story. But some part of me was like, wait, wait a minute, where's what we were talking about? That's fair. I think the reason why um, the part of it that I'm particularly appreciative of is that the conversation is – 
moving away from the kind of salaciousness and entertainment value of which of our favorite starlets had this experience to the bigger question of why there's silence in organizations that um, enables it. And that it's not just – and the entertainment industry is potent in this way because the women are commodities and the money is so enormous. The idea that at Fox News there could be a $32 million settlement for the same person who then gets a $100 million contract. And that means other people there are allowing this to continue and protecting it. And the hyperbolic numbers, I think, are why it's worth looking at, because it shows you what happens when money is at play. I think money is also at, um, in play, big money, in uh, funding for startups. Mm-hmm. It's very hard for women to get money. Yes. You know? um, I think that's what happens in investing, and that's what happens uh, in startups. The idea is you ju- women can't be trusted with big piles of money. And Wall Street is the same thing. So that is, is part of it. So the startup world, I mean, think of, of what women are not getting, not getting the opportunity to create fortunes and have power mm-hmm. because, you know, digital uh, creations have enormous oversized power in society right now. That makes entertainment actually pale in comparison in, it's my, true. In, my, in my mind. It's a fair point that the significant kind of dollars that are coming out of it and the wealth that it does not create for women and the opportunity that it denies all of us and what women can contribute has a huge societal ripple effect. Yeah. Um, also, within tech culture, there is, within the, the tech startup community, and you write about this in some really insightful ways, um, about the difference between the idea of what technology was supposed to be doing for society and how the decisions are being made around how and why technology gets developed. And once again, it's almost as if the the power of technology, like what can you do to help AIDS patients, has been diverted by the quest for how much money can we make. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we, we are left with, uh, you know, the big four, uh, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. And we have, you know, the, four horse, the five horsemen of the apocalypse if you add Uber. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, this is extremely distressing to me because the amount of money they have and the amount of power they have. It, it, we go back to the days, I mean, people say the robber barons, but at least the robber barons, you know, uh, built libraries, and I don't know, I guess Zuckerberg did fund uh, San Francisco General Hospital, which is a nice thing to do. Um, I, what, I, what scares me about what's going on with the big technology companies is, and people say, well, well, what can Facebook do? Why don't they change this? Why don't they do that? And why doesn't Google do this? Now, there's only a limited amount that the people who run these companies can do because their business is great big algorithms, all right? And these algorithms were written with something to do in mind. And they, well, the, uh, the results are like, whoa, we didn't mean that. So they tweak it and other results pop up that were not desirable. And they tweak it again. And then there's this arms race between the, the changes in the algorithms and what people get to do to get their stuff noticed. And so what 
what scares me, I mean, if you look at this also, if women are listening who are in the financial world with high-speed algorithmic trading, there is this loss of human agency for us to be able to intervene in, in situations where there are these algorithms that are really powerful. And we're at a state now with machine learning that algorithms write code, write code, write code. And even the original creators are not quite sure what's going on inside there. They can see the results, but not, not how it's being done. So this is a big concern for me, and I want to bring up a culture hero. Please let me get his name out of my mind, but <laughs> it's a Bronx councilman, who uh, Bronx in New York, mm-hmm. who proposed uh, a bill, may it pass, uh, mandating that the algorithms used uh, to make decisions within the borough are examined for bias. And these are algorithms that decide where children will go to school, where mm-hmm. police will be assigned, even garbage pickup schedules, all right? So are or there is there bias in there for the communities that you know could send the most people to meetings and so forth. So this is the kind of agency we need to fight to get. We need to fight to get back to uh, find out what's in these algorithms and change them. But we cannot. All those algorithms in the big four, the big five, Microsoft, you can add as many as you like, are proprietary, and they are not going to tell us what's going on inside there not let us examine the code. Well, the person that I'm examining all of this with today is Ellen Ullman. Um, here on Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, I'm Laura Zarrow. If you'd like to join in the conversation, you can reach us at one eight four four wharton That's 844-942-7866. So, Ellen, would you take a few steps back for me? Because it's something you write about really beautifully in the book. And for the people who aren't familiar with how algorithms are created and how they operate and why they can carry bias, can you explain that to us a little bit? Well, as I say, uh, let's say you've got this problem. Right? Uh, let's use something really, uh, really simple. How to determine... Uh, I, I spoke to Larry Page about this years and years ago when he was just... Google was just starting to make money. <laughs> and I knew him uh, socially. And, and I asked him, I said, well, you know, the algorithm you're using to determine what's most uh, relevant is the, the one with the most links into it. And it seems to me the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And he was very thoughtful, and he's a really brilliant guy. He looked at me and said, well, you're right, but I couldn't figure out what to do about that. And what he meant was he couldn't figure out what to do algorithmically. He did not have the tools. There was no human curator to look inside mm-hmm. those those uh, places that were that had many links to see... Well, is this really good? Uh, is this? Are they just putting out all these tags to fool us? Uh, is this uh, a racist site? They intervened once, to my knowledge, about um, anti-Semitism. Uh, uh, if you typed in Jew, the first responses were all these uh, anti-Jewish hate hate organizations, and they actually put a notice that said, "If you uh, search for Jewish, you will get better results," and that was shocking to me. Because the problem is no human curator can actually deal with billions of searches and billions of postings. We try to keep up with it, but uh, how do these algorithms look inside to determine what is really good? So in a way, it's like an exponentially um, complex pipeline problem. 
in that as more and more as algorithms are going out and scanning the the web and the digital landscape to find and retrieve things and pull them into search engines and connect them to other activities. Um, A, they're growing at such an enormous rate that it can't be done manually. And um, it reflects the bias that's embedded from all of their points of origin. I agree. I think you've summed up the problem accurately. And so is there anything that can be done about it? (laughs) Well, I, I do advocate, first of all, that I want to demystify code, that people from all walks of life at least just expose themselves to it. I'm not saying become a, a computer programmer. It takes a kind of crazy person <laughs> with you know, high tolerance for failure. Blah, blah, blah. A passionate uh, crazy person. A passionate crazy person. Um, but just to, I, I often, I have actually little bits of code in, in this book. And in my novel, The Bug, I had sort of illustrations of blocks of code. And I, I do this not because I expect people to understand the code itself. I just want people to look at it and say, you know what, this isn't magic. It's a bunch of letters and numbers and symbols in a structured fashion. And to understand that people can intervene. Other people can write these things. Try to uh, add human agency of more types of people inside the uh, creation uh, of these algorithms and the directions they take. That's that's the main thing I, I try to tell people. I, you, know, not, you don't need to code. Now, I don't think coding is uh, part of basic literacy. I argue against that stance. I think the people with basic literacy should look at code, find out what it is, understand that we're surrounded by things that are written in this form. People wrote it, and people can perhaps, with organization, with uh, so on the ground, social organizing, uh, intervene in, in the methods that these uh, algorithms are, are using. You know, you you had written in when you were talking about um, coding at different points in the book, you had explained that it's not about right and wrong, that software engineering in particular is about better and worse. And it sounds like part of what you're asking us to consider is that it's not one and done. It's not that it was right because someone executed. These are all um, byproducts of human effort. And therefore, they're going to be just as flawed as we are and just as eligible for revision as any of our work products could be. Yet I they totally have, agree with that, yes. Yet they have massive impact because of the scale of distribution and access. Yes. Um, so when you're talking about coming down to the ground, I want to... Um, Talk about this was something that you wrote about at the end of the book, and you were writing about you know to what end are we using technology? Whose problems are we solving? Whose problems do we think we're solving? And if you don't mind, I want to read a little passage that I thought was really beautiful. Um, you wrote, "How far away is the true work of creating a more egalitarian world? The slow, hard job of organizing, the hours of contentious community meetings, the clash of need against need. Only those who work close to the ground and take that code into their own hands um, can give us can tell us what technology is good for them. In other words, um, that." Doing this remotely, abstractly, trying to determine what needs are based on algorithms, we're not getting into the ugly, dirty work of actually talking to each other. Yes. I, all the people in WeWork devising their apps uh, to change the world 
are living in an airy, you know, of their own narcissistic imagining, uh, looking down for solving problems. And I'll give uh, an example. There, um, you, you know, uh, they're often undocumented uh, men who uh, are day laborers and they stand in certain places to be picked up by those who have some jobs for the day. And among them, there are people who pick them up who did not pay them at the end of the day. And they were looking for a way to tell other people that, hey, don't go with this guy. It's something like the Depression. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the so-called hobos would put these uh, indentations and signs in, in doorposts that say, you know, or in fences, you know, a mean man's in here, a kind woman. And, and so there was already a group working with these day laborers. And then they went to some, uh, some coders, some programmers, who were willing to work with them and devise a, a way to give these uh, day laborers a, a way to communicate with others and say, don't, don't go with this guy. This is the license plate number. Don't dare get in there, in a way that, of course, was anonymous. That protected their identities. Now, to me, that's exactly the right way for uh, apps to be written. So that they're written to serve the people on the ground in response to the needs that they see up close. Absolutely right. So is that part of what you were trying to do in those early days of trying to create systems to help AIDS patients? Well, I didn't. First of all, I came on as a long-term consultant. Okay. Uh, I, I was not the creator of that program. I was not in charge of it. It was a big program. It went right up to people in City Hall. I was there to translate their needs, again, that's been my role, translator, uh, into things that could be addressed with computers and networks. Now, that was (laughs) a difficult problem. So they were motivated to do this, and so was I. I thought, yes, these are people who already know the needs. They've been working uh, in the epidemic, some from the very earliest days, uh, that's when I first learned about the uh, the cocktail that was saving people's lives. That was not generally known. It, it became known within this organiza- set of organizations. So they are the ones, the people who had been working uh, with the patients, the patients themselves were, were contributed to what they needed and what they wanted. And, and so my job was to find a way to uh, implement this. And this was extremely rewarding and extremely difficult, as I tell you, because <laughs> the politics of something like AIDS uh, is, is, is say, challenging. <laughs> yeah, vastly complex and ever more so then. Yes. Um, in a section in the book, you were talking about that, that time in your life when you were living um, in a farmhouse in Ithaca, um, when you had discovered that that per, that you know handheld device where you could capture video, um, and you it was I thought a powerful juxtaposition of um, where there was a local milk cooperative that was actually putting it was a form of technology putting dairy farmers out of work, and at the same time you had the tools in your own hand to create document documentaries to bring this to people's attention. How do you think now about that juxtaposition and where we can put our efforts to where do we need to limit technology and where do we need to leverage technology? Yes, I, I, I think perhaps the best piece that I worked on with the uh, Ithaca Video Project was the one we did of uh, a family farm 
farmer that we knew uh, of this woman uh, walking around her her small dairy farm and saying what was going to happen to her if they, the milk cooperative no longer picked up the traditional cans of milk, but only from a bulk tank. You can imagine a big mm-hmm. thing where all the milk goes and they pump it out, which required a lot of money uh, going into debt, and they probably would not have been given loans to do that. So we went there and we showed it to uh, organizations and government. We uh, showed it at the cooperative, uh, farmers who were members of that cooperative, and they barely glanced at it. Uh, we were just a bunch of hippies who were living in a the, the farmhouse of a failed farm on the cheap. And what did we know of their lives? And that taught me something, a deep lesson. Of course, we failed. Uh, the cooperative prevailed, and many small family farmers were driven out of business. That really taught me something. The desire of how to use technology to change things and its limitations. And... And to understand, you know, look at it with one eye closed. You know, wonderful things are coming along in technology. I mean, don't you love your phone? Don't, I mean, <laughs> I, I lost mine. And then, you know, well, for the first day I was lost. The second day I thought, you know, this isn't so bad. But wondrous things are happening. Uh, medical, science, it, it, it's fantastic. On the other hand, there, the changes that are being done to society, we have to remain skeptical all the time, have to look at everything and ask the big question, what is this doing to us on a deeper level, on an intimate level? I mean, look at Tinder. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The implications are vast. Ellen, I could talk to you all day about this, but unfortunately, we're running out of time. Um, To our listeners, I strongly recommend Life and Code, A Personal History of Technology by Ellen Ullman. Um, Ellen, thank you for joining us. Really, this has been a pleasure to talk to you. Same here. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. And you can follow me at Laura Zarrow. A very special thank you to my guest today, Ellen Ullman. I'd also like to thank my fabulous producer Patty Hall, Jackie Gaffney, as well as our sound engineer Tatiana Zamis. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. Have a great week, everybody. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.